But without further ado, Julie, Seth, I'm not sure who's starting first, but thank you very much, everybody else, for joining. Yeah, thank you so much, Mandy. Thanks for having us. Um, so kind of a two, uh, two separate webinars jammed into one today. Um, first, I'm going to talk about what Pan Exchange is and what we offer and what's new, what we're doing. Um, and then Seth is going to get into an example of the fundamental analysis we do and the state of the industry and moving forward. And then from that, we're, as, as Mandy said, we're hoping to get a ton of questions from you. Um, so, so like everyone, Pan Exchange has grown and, and developed and, and expanded or, or diversified, if you will, um, since we all got into the hemp market after the farm bill. Um, so just to, a little bit about our team here. Um, so we bring a fundamental analysis um, from the big trade houses to the market. And if you know us, you know we're quite proud of that discipline. Um, my background is predominantly with Cargill, trading Latin American sugar. Uh, I was with Sempra Energy Trading and I was hired by Excel Financial to build out agricultural weather derivatives clearly have a passion for these agricultural markets and um, new products and, and new opportunities to help lift this often antiquated market. Um, Seth's skill set is also huge in the international grain trade, but he has much more comprehensive knowledge at the farm level. And that's um, not only super valuable with, with hemp, but with our new carbon program. And we'll be getting into that more. He, has worked with um, Stonex and grain trading and operations with JBS, grew up on a cattle ranch. The guy knows his stuff. Uh, Alex is uh, the lead on our carbon program with regard to program management, methodology, documentation, um, getting those credits to market as fast as possible. And if you ever have any tech issues on our site, you'll be talking to Mike Miller. So at a high level, here's, here are the type of services that, that we're offering. With Hemp, we are the only ones offering an online digital brokerage service or, or online trading platform. And we often also work offline, getting cannabinoids, grain, and fiber moving from grower to processor to end buyer. Um, we are the leading benchmark price provider and analysis. It's, these are, this is a, uh, an annual subscription for monthly prices uh, and market analysis, covers regulatory issues, legislative issues, grant work, any new development that, that affects the fundamentals of the market. Um, you can see here on the market analysis, this is a screenshot of the cover page of our most recent report um, on fiber. Uh, and we put a couple screenshots in, in for Seth's um, part of the Prezo um, from that report that you can get a sneak peek at. Um, we've been doing, especially since like the end of Q4 or early Q1, a lot of business development consulting. And of course, getting this carbon program off the ground uh, and open, which it is now. And I'll be talking a little bit more about that. Let's talk about the consultant. There's, there's a few different things that we do. One is just overall business development strategy. Um, an example is, is where, where should I, I'm thinking of locating a processing facility in this state or that state. Which one is better for us? Um, what is the, what's the supply nearby for that? What are transportation costs to get there? Who are my competitors? What are some price forecasts we can, we can work with? Um, another area for business development is starting a new grow operation. And the interesting thing, what I love about our work, I'm talking to one client who's a tiny, tiny farmer. We're helping him with his financial forecasts and geographic, uh, his, his location risks, um, connecting to seed providers and processors. I'm also in talks on an international um, entity to help build a national hemp program doing the exact same thing, where to get the seeds, where to, where, you know, where to get the, the sales pipeline, the financial forecast, the timing, the agronomists, all of that. We love this type of work. Um, we're also doing uh, market analysis for funding rounds. And I should also say for grants, lots of work. I think we were in, I don't remember the number, 
six or seven grant applications uh, in that in that last big round from the USDA. Um, and we're giving the supportive documentation with regard to the supply, the demand, um, growth expectations, of course, price and competitive issues and legislative issues that could change any, any part of the, the modeling, the financial modeling. Um, sometimes we do this work for the client directly. Uh, in another case, we were actually hired by the investment bank um, for a more independent assessment of the market. They, you know, of course they believe in their client. They wanted an, an, an independent study to tell them how we really felt what the problems and opportunities are in the US hemp market. Uh, we do a lot of financial modeling and pitch decks. I have personally, I've lost count, um, even for our own company, how many times I've done the financial modeling from you know future revenue flow, budgeting, cash flow analysis, pitch decks, two different kinds, right? There's one that goes to the investor. There's another pitch deck for competitions. Uh, happen to have won a couple of those. So um, I've, I've done a lot on that front as well. Um, and of course, um, the big one here is the carbon farm economics and, and, and go-to-market carbon strategies. So let's, I wanna talk for a second about our carbon program because we've made enormous progress with this. We are open for business and we cannot wait to get started. Um, actually, I'm gonna start at the bottom and then go back to the top. If you look at this link um, to a, a blog we wrote, agricultural carbon credits, listen to the farmers. This is really important. We take the bull by the horns and we say, here's why farmers are not you know, banging down your door to line up for a carbon program. Um, the other programs are just not lucrative. I've spent um, I, hundreds of man hours with our law firm creating a program where we think we can cut the time and cost by at least half um, to get you a viable marketable carbon credit to market. We are the only ones that are offering you the ability to forward sell it as soon as that project is validated. And then, <coughs> here's the big one. We are the only ones that give you 100% ownership. That land is your asset and, and you should own it. Um, and that's why um, we, and Seth, you know, Seth will show you when we go into carbon farm economics, if, if you're interested in our program, why uh, most programs only offer one to 1.5% increase in revenue per acre. We can show you with today's costs, which we're, we know will go down, and today's prices, which we know will go up, um, we can show you 15% increase in revenue per acre, and that's not even hemp. Um, so this is in a very, very exciting program. We think that it is something that's honestly gonna help grow the hemp market faster. It's gonna help you get competitive price-wise because you're getting revenue from this other side, from the carbon side. So you're now competing with the incumbent products at a better price point. Um, and of course, we're adding a distributed ledger technology um, and we're adding it to our, our pre-existing trading platform. So it's a fully vertically integrated program um, and we couldn't be more excited about it. So, Julie, yeah. Did you see that there's a comment? I'm wondering if you, oh, you got it. I have, was it, I didn't see uh, the comment. What is it? It's oh, somebody, it. someone was asking for the link. I'm going to share it here so everybody in the meeting can see the link you were just talking about. Got it. Didn't mean to interrupt you. Sorry. Um, so, in the interest of time, I'm going to, Actually, uh, yeah, uh, when Seth speaks, I'll get these three links to you in the chat. Um, but, and we can come back to this slide if you want a super fast crash course on what the heck is a carbon program and how does it work. Um, I'm happy to come back and dig into this on the Q&A. And then uh, with that, I'm gonna turn this over to Seth. Um, as I'd mentioned, the, he's going to be speaking on state of the industry and going forward. And I have, in the interest of time, random, randomly screen grab a couple of shots from our most recent um, fiber report um, for you to look at while, while he's speaking. And um, Seth, I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, um, yeah, I'll start off in the state of the industry and then we'll move on to kind of like a forward looking uh, 
Yeah, our forward-looking synopsis for both fiber, grain, and cannabinoids. Um, but currently, um, starting with fiber, um, processing has been increasing. And this would be actually, I'd say, the first year where we have a significant amount of decorticators capable of meeting the capacity that large industrial buyers would need. Um, but Simultaneously, it's been a tough year on the farm side. Um, there is acres actually contracted from 12,690 in 2021 to just under 9,000 acres planted this year in 2022. And then with that, it'll be very interesting to see um, how successful harvesting was from that, um, just due, mainly due to um, tough growing conditions as far as weather goes. It was really tough to get establishment this year. And then we're still perfecting genetics, especially on the fiber side. We've identified a lot of, um, we've identified some adaptable genetics, but there's still ways to go as far as perfecting um, in terms of yield quality and um, uniformity as well too. Um, in terms of sales, um, herd has been probably the most marketable product um, across all the decorticators um, that's mainly being led by um, mainly being led by plastics, animal bedding and construction projects. Um, plastics is more than is probably the most interesting, really just because we've seen costs of production come down on that side, um, especially when you get down below 300 microns, which is what a lot of these injection molders and plastics company compounders want to work with. Um, so it's progressing very rapidly, um, but there's still a ways to go. Um, in terms of bast fiber, um, there's a lot of interest there. Um, and this would be the first year we're actually meet, able to meet that scale, but there's still, I'd say issues of quality and uh, yeah, and quality and production uniformity mainly due to, um, I'd say like the redding side and or degumming fast fiber as well. Um, so we've made tremendous progress on that, but I mean, there's still a ways to go. Um, but for right now, the markets that are demanding this like into non-wovens and paper pulping, um, we can meet those industry needs and we're very, very close to meeting um, other large ind industrial needs such as automotive and others. Um, and so, yeah, that I'd say that really sums it up on like the fiber side. Um, and to kind of provide a synopsis of that, uh, processing capacity has increased greatly. There's still challenges on the farm side. And I'd say like the quality side to meet a lot of the more nuanced um, applications that hemp can, hemp can service. And then on the grain side, uh, same story there, really. Um, Acres declined. We went from 8,300 in 2021 to 4,181 in 2022. I'd say more or less there. It was more driven by the adverse growing conditions for one, but also just the increase in other commodity prices. So in Montana and other areas, you're seeing a lot more competition from um, a lot more competition from like flax and other small grains, peas, lentils, those have all increased um, tenfold, or not tenfold, but they've almost doubled over the past five years in a lot of those markets and price has gone up for that. Um, so in, on the hemp grain side, um, premiums, if any, they were only maybe bumped up 10 cents per pound. And with the current state of genetics and the risk that a farmer observes um, in grain production, it's it's easy to see how you could lose acres, uh, but I'd say establishment was a very big, a big issue in terms of grain acreage as well. And in terms of like processing and supply of food markets remain as the primary source of demand. Um, and honestly, right now, the U.S. food market is, I mean, where there's scarcity of food grain, um, food grade grain in the U.S., um, and Canada really is like the only supplier I'd stay at the moment. So we are going to have to increase acres if we're going to meet that demand. There's several different, um, let's say there's several different manufacturers right now looking to procure long-term contracts. It's just, um, yeah, we need to develop that supply to really meet that in the US. And 
as far as like the like production aspects of it, um, grain uniformity is probably the biggest issue in terms of, I'd say, being efficient from the processing side. We need um, like in genetics are doing or solving a lot of those issues. Um, so that would be making sure you have a consistent seed head size, consistent moisture at time of harvest. And then beyond that, that's when we can start increasing the yield and competing with more principal crops. Um, and so, yeah, synopsis on the grain side is food demand is there. Um, feed is, there's still a ways to go, but there are still a lot of, I'd say smaller scale and niche applications such as um, like feed additives from the oil or even cake. Um, that present a lot of opportunities um, in the states that have legalized those. And even in the retail markets, um, there are opportunities there for hemp seed oil and other, other additives. Um, and then, but yeah, production is still a big challenge, um, but it's, it seems as far as yield and uniformity goes, it's a step ahead of the fiber side. Um, on cannabinoids, biomass prices have been increasing, especially if you have a large um, if you have a large volume of biomass on hand, uh, we're seeing lots of over 130,000 of over 100,000 pounds um, really trade between like a dollar 75 to 225 on. Um, I'd say that would be if it is dry um, and 8% or greater on CBD content. And I mean, it really has to meet that, but we're seeing issues with pesticides, um, moisture damage and degradation. Um, so we're still seeing a lot of lower quality lots go, go as low as a dollar and even seeing um, smaller scaled lots that are of quality go down to a dollar as well, just because it's, everyone's really looking for volume right now. And, but I'd say most recently we're seeing offers go even higher, um, seeing a lot of, a lot of, groups not willing to sell below $3. And, and we really kind of expect that to continue, but it's gonna be hard to get that moved um, until the refined product side moves up. So if you are a extractor for crude or processing into distillate, a lot of those bulk markets aren't really allowing the margin for them to pay up to $3 for um, biomass at the moment. Um, and we're kind of seeing that wash out. I mean, there's the quality aspect is in those markets as well. There's still a lot of raw crew going um, below dollar. We're seeing potency really start to slip off. Um, and so a lot of those quality aspects are kind of providing leverage um, for buyers to kind of keep prices a little sticky right now. Um, and, but on the supply situation, I will, yeah, kind of the same thing like as everywhere across the board. So in 2021, we had 15,980 acres. And this last year, we had 7,800. And when you include um, the Delta 8 markets and different synthetic markets, um, demand, I would say demand vastly outpaces supply. Um, but we're going to ration down some of that um, synthetic demand because of the volume available. And it's honestly going to open up some opportunity for imports, but it's just a question on how long it could last. And so we'll get into this later going into um, going into the looking forward piece, but it's really a question on like, are we going to have enough to get to the 2023 harvest? And then are we going to have enough to get through 2024 from then? Um, so now moving on to going forward. Um, so on the fiber side, so like that map earlier, um, and I think I saw a question on that. Um, that map was for mainly decorticators. And as far as like secondary processing, we just now have like that decortication capacity to where these secondary processing can significantly expand and take advantage of that. So um, you're going to see the opportunity for these companies that have been working on R&D on the manufacturing stage, um, scale up production because of the level of process or of decorticators that are out there now. Um, so I'd say roughly there's 20 decorticators online now and they'll have scaled production um, this year. And then we're seeing, I'd say there's, yeah, there's probably a total of 12 perspective ones, but it's just a question on how much of those really come into fruition in the next five years. 
And, but long story short, acreage is going to be what limits this market in terms of production. And over the next five years, to fill up those 20 um, processors, we're going to need 60,000 acres. We think we are going to manage that mainly because of the genetic um, the genetic development and then seeing yield improve. And it's going to pencil in more for a farmer. So 60,000 acres is not unrealistic compared to where we, I mean, even with where we are now below 10,000 acres. And in terms of that capacity, um, operating one shift, there would be um, right around 200,000 tons per year um, from just one shift again. And so in short on the fiber side, um, it's going to be, there's a lot of interesting things going on right now. We're seeing a lot of investment going in, uh, both on like paper pulping, um, textiles This is still very much in the R&D stage, um, but we're seeing like automotive applications and more industrial applications and build and insulation and building materials um, really pick up steam. And those with the scale that we're developing right now, um, they're going to be able to eat what we can produce. And, but really it's just getting, it's all about bridging those gaps. Um, so how you can get, so once we have fiber quality, getting to that scale to meet that next level buyer and then going on from there. So it's not going to be a smooth ride. It's gonna be more of a staircase, I'd say. Um, and then on the grain side, um, as I said earlier, there are several different firms right now working in food manufacturing and R&D for several products that are not able to find um, grain in the U.S. right now. And so there's plenty of oppor short-term opportunity on the grain side and the food side, and but we have to increase acreage. That's the big thing is if we can't increase acreage this year, those companies are not going to have a choice but to source from Canada. So if we want to establish the grain industry here, we're going to have to work with farmers and more than likely end up having to pay some premiums short term until the genetics and that farm economic aspect pencils in much better for those farmers. And once like we can get over that hump to where they feel comfortable growing it and they don't see it as nearly as a risky proposition, then that's when we can really start becoming more competitive with other um, with other grant like farm commodities as well. And but still at this moment, there's a lot of food demand. And it's just really meeting to that scale and getting the uniformity quality to the point where we can start meeting a lot of those distribution contracts. Um, and as we go along there, that's when we're going to start creating more co-products and byproducts that are going to open up opportunities on the feed side. I'd say once you start, like once you have byproducts that you are looking for something to do with and the feed industry is a low hanging fruit, that's when you're really going to start seeing more traction, both on like market adaptation and also um, with approvals as well too. I mean, if you look back at a lot of products that have gone through the approval process, they were expedited once they became a problem in terms of what we do, or what we're going to do with this. And, and so long story short, like over the next five years, I mean, food demand is going to eat a lot of the grain production that we have. And we're going to get, we're going to start seeing these approvals for poultry on the federal level start really trickling in. Um, and more states are going to approve it at the companion level, animal level. And there's a lot of that opportunity at that companion, companion or show animal level where for hemp seed oil or different additives and supplements to really to yeah to meet those niche product demands and beyond that that's when we can start really getting into the bag feed side and then we're already seeing a lot of interest from the poultry side on especially for layers um so like hemp eggs and higher omega-3 eggs there's go there's demand for that already and as we develop the food market and have byproducts to where that it, it becomes economical as a feed input we'll see more and more adaptation. And on cannabinoid side, this year, um, it's 
going to be really a question on whether we can get to harvest on demand as far as like having enough supply through the year. I believe your traditional CBD companies will be predominantly fine on supply. It's the bulk markets and the um, it's the bulk markets. It's the bulk markets in these like in Delta eight and similar products that might that are going to really have struggle finding supply and might have to rely on inputs. And but the good news is that they do have room to move up on price. But it's just really working through a lot of the quality issues and the vault, like the quality issues on the refined product side to really allow that refined product to move up in price and let people start buying, buying us again and maintaining a margin. And so in short, this year, it's going to be, I'd say, very tight. And but it's a big question mark on when and how fast prices will go up. Um, I don't think there's any doubt that prices will have to go up, but it's just really a question of when. Um, so from our perspective, the spot market, there's not, it's very hard to find large volumes of quality biomass, but it's really a question of what people have in inventory. Um, I know people have had a lot of opportunities to build up war chests, and I think a lot of people have seen this coming, especially with the acres that we've put in the past few years. And beyond that, um, I'd say 2024 has the biggest question mark to it. Um, I mean, it's already pretty late in the game to procure more acres. And there's there are groups that can make a margin down to $1.50 a pound with the scaled production that they do. Um, I'd say it's not like your like it wouldn't be your traditional CBD operations or higher end CBD operations. I mean, it's a grain population and they harvest the floral material off of that. Um, so like there are producers that can make margins at the lower biomass prices, but to get the acreage that we see being demanded from the entire market, um, you're going to more than likely need to get to to $3 and above to encourage that type of acreage. And for us, we see um, anywhere from 13,000 to 20,000 acres being demanded when you include Delta A and other synthetic cannabinoids. Um, so really um, beyond 2023, it's just a question of how much we successfully put in the ground this year. And if it's anything under 10,000 acres, we're going to be seriously short and we're going to have to see prices correct to for groups to be able to really pencil in a margin and then we'll probably return to a new normal rather than the suppressed prices we've observed for three years now. Um, so that'd be a short of it. I'm happy to answer questions. Um, Julie, have you been following some of the questions? Are there any you want to address right away? And then Seth, if you want to take time, there's quite a few that are specifically related to pricing and estimated of acres and things like that. Yeah, I would suggest that we, while we're on the topic, we go to all the, the specific supply and demand um, questions for Seth and then go back to the, to the one big carbon question that was in the chat. Um, so first question from Bill Brill. Um, hi, Bill. Uh, yeah, I mean, it would be a very early uh, fiber and grain acreage estimate. On the fiber side, I really think that we're going to need 15,000 acres at a minimum for some of these larger processors. So if you're a very, if you're a very large processor, say between like five and 10 tons an hour, you're going to need probably 5,000 acres to fill that up 85% of the time. Um, to make sure overhead does it. Um, so but across like those bigger processors, I'd say we're going to need a minimum of, I'd say 17,500, but really, yeah, I'd say we the market would demand like a 25,000, but it's going to be hard to procure that acreage again. And we're not out of the drought yet either. Um, so we're going to have to consider that aspect. And then the genetic side is going to be a limitation as well. And then you'd have seed multiplication issues beyond that. Um, so it's really as much as the production aspects let you go. So I'd say probably, I'd say we probably end up somewhere around 17.5 um, with what we know now 
and we'll get more fruition throughout the year as we figure like we get more procurement data on the grain side um i really think that we need to be at ten thousand to sufficiently meet the current food demand that we see even if it's at the r d level and then beyond that's when we're really going to see grain acreage probably take off more and get above twenty thousand. but this year i still think like we're probably 10 to twelve thousand five hundred. Um, and there are a handful more grain processors in the U.S. as well. Um, so yeah, I hope that answered that question. Um, I hope you're right with the acres. I hope that we are at that many. <laughs> I hope that we. I, I hope so too. It. I mean, that is based off of like what the market would demand. Um, but as we learn more, then we'll figure out really how things are going on that farm side. Um, yeah, I'd say it's it's late in the game to start procuring acreage or trying to pick up more acreage, but we're going to see more final decisions from what I see. Um, but yeah, um, regardless with where we are on genetics, it wouldn't surprise me to see kind of like that 60,000 acres that we see at the end of five years, most of that work being done in year three and four, five. Um, I don't know if this is a question you guys have off the top of your head. I know it's a question we discuss a lot with Morgan at IND and with the Hemp Feed Coalition, but how many states are allowing hemp products in various livestock and poultry feeds? So there's Kentucky, Montana. Um, Florida. Yeah, Florida. And then you'd have like, like, yeah, Texas. You know, I've heard rumors of like Texas and Oklahoma as well. Um, I think Texas might be a little bit further. I think they're in like the argument of how to like what well, how to put it in writing from what I've heard. And then Kentucky did the grass reading, which is I'd say the best. Um, yeah, I'd say like that would be the most meaningful would be getting a grass designation for M at the state level and at the federal level, that would be amazing. That would be home run. Um, but a lot of like the I'd say like markets that just don't aren't really regulated. Um, and so like, um, so like show animals and different animals, like unless there is like a testing protocol, but if it's hemp seed oil or hemp seed cake, you're not going to have CBD content in there. Um, so there's less of a concern there. Um, so like already see hemp seed oil in the equestrian markets um, available for sale nationwide. Um, I think it's only a matter of time till you see like hemp cake, either we already see treats, um, but maybe like a show supplement or something similar to that. Um, so next Beth, question. Yeah, Beth from E60 is asking, what's the pricing per pound on grain lately? There was also one on fiber, if you want to touch on fiber at the same time, potentially. Um, yeah, I'll start off on the grain side. On grain, if it's organic, say it'd be a dollar ten to a dollar fifty, um, depending on like your dockages, like, and that would be like delivered. So also how far away the farm would be from that processor. Um, so I'd say yeah, it's probably gravitating to like 110, 120 off the farm gate. Um, your um, conventional grain. Still predominantly, I'd say like 70 cents to 90 cents. Um, I'd say like earlier in the year, like people were contracting at like 60 cents a pound on that. Um, but on grain, like seeing a lot of quality issue, quality dockages, moisture dockages, and drying has also been an issue. Um, beyond that, I mean, if it doesn't meet those like food grade qualities, we're seeing um, say like birdseed takes a lot of it. Um, and then some other people might pick it up. I mean, there's a lot of, I'd say like, there's like a local feed level market, but it's not very lucrative at that point. So like we're seeing those, like I'd say 15 to 30 cents a pound, um, kind of similar to where you'd see like flax. And then as far as like hemp bales, if it's true hemp fiber bales, seeing groups really want to, to contract at $300 a ton, um, but we're seeing a lot of groups having to get to $400 a ton to get things in the ground. Um, and that's off like the farm gate for a fiber variety grown for fiber. Um, we're seeing groups pay um, 
I'd say like there's been observations of groups paying like up to like $800 a ton just to have like R&D volume to work with, but that's not common. Um, I'd say contracting, it would be 300 to 400. Um, if it's like a grain variety and they're harvesting the stocks off of that, I'd say you'd see some 200 as well. Um, and then like if it's CBD stocks off of that that are going into like pulping and that are still suitable for pulping, seeing a lot of groups pick those up at like 80 to 100 at a time. Um, um, but then, yeah, go, going forward, I'd, I'd say you'd probably need to be around 300 to 400, depending where you are throughout the U.S. to get a farmer and compete with hay prices. So Tyler's asking a question that I think I can answer pretty quickly and is, is uh, can you speak to how important it is to grow hemp within proximity to where it's being processed? Um, here's the easiest <laughs> example of that. Um, and, and I'll, you know, speak in exaggeration to just, just uh, make it simple. You're growing on the east side of Kentucky, the processors on the west side of Kentucky. It's going to cost you, hypothetically, a dollar a ton to get all of your, uh, your material across the state to compete with the guy who may be farming right next to that processing facility. Um, transportation costs will always go into um, the equation as, as far as your competitiveness. So where you are, where you grow and where your local processing, your closest processing facilities are is an enormous piece uh, of the puzzle. And it, and it, it will often knock out um, price-wise, it'll knock you out of competition, even if you have better quality. Um, so hopefully that was a, simple, simple way to answer that. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I'd say to add on to that outside of the production gate, it's how well you can package and condense products as well. So like a hemp bale, like that's pure bass fiber. Um, seeing that travel pretty far as well. I mean, cotton is, if you can compete with cotton, I mean, that's shipped throughout the globe. Um, I'd say like the really big issue with that would be on like the herd side, but where we are with like the animal bedding markets, um, we can still take advantage of that like retail market to where we can, I'd say like quell the bleeding on that, but it's very important as we build scale. And then Beth saying, um, what, what are the biggest obstacles we're hearing outside of funding and competing with other commodities to procure acreage? I mean, you know, competing with other commodities is a very big one right now. Um, and I, you know, I, I don't think we should discount the stigma that we have in hemp and that everybody knows someone who lost their shirt. Um, and so people are wary of growing this new crop. We are hoping that showing how lucrative hemp can be from a carbon perspective is really gonna help change that. Um, Seth, do you have anything uh, for procuring acreage? Do you have any more to add on that? Um, yeah, I mean, I'd say market availability. Um, so, for example, like there's 20 processors throughout the U.S. on the fiber side. I mean, so that kind of limits it, limits where you can go. And then beyond that, you would have um, available genetics that are adapted to your area. So like in grain, that's why the northern Midwest states have such a big advantage is because they have um, genetics that are came out of Canada. And then there's the European varieties that match very well with those latitudes. And then it's the network, the distribution network. So if you're a grain farmer, um, so if you're a farmer, like normally they only have like two or three options where they can sell their grain to and then the freight gets too big for them to prefer another vendor. Um, it's a concept of basis. Um, but like those distribution networks, they can sell to their elevator and that elevator can sell that to a larger mid-level marketer. And then it goes out from there. So like you could have Iowa corn go to the Texas Panhandle every single year because there's a distribution network for that. Um, so like we don't have that infrastructure or so like getting to that mainstream level is like you need a lot of like elevators and distributors to participate as well, which that's going to come as we get bigger. Mm -hmm. um, Would it be okay to get back to Jeff's been waiting so patiently on this carbon credit question? 
And I was going to ask too, where, you know, when we dive into that, where does that market, what does it really look like as carbon becomes this additional resource or subsidy that helps pull this market forward? Julie, can you dive into that more as well? Yeah. So, you know, we, we've just talked so high level about how hemp is such a carbon friendly crop. First of all, there's many different kinds of carbon credits. So, so right now we're just talking about the soil. Um, the reason hemp is so friendly is because it's a very tight row crop with deep, deep roots that sequesters the carbon. Um, we're talking at least three tons per acre, whereas your traditional gain, grains possibly are less than one ton per acre on the soil. Something a little longer term, we have the methodology, but it, the market's not quite there yet, but um, there is um, uh, carbon stored in the biomass as well. If you can cut the stalk and show that you sequester the carbon and put it to a permanent use, the biomass to a permanent use, such as hempcrete, not textiles, um, that is an annual carbon credit. That is a cash cow that you get on top of your biomass sales every year, um, which is what uh, we just need to do. I think the market needs a little more life cycle analysis to show that, um, that permanence. Um, and then we're off to the races with that. Um, so our carbon program is fully vertically integrated. We help landowners and contract farmers obtain carbon credits. And then, as I mentioned, once you obtain it, you own it and you can sell it. In fact, you can forward sell it before the actual release date um, on our trading platform directly to the buyer, the buyer pays our fees. You don't pay for that part of this. Um, so what this means is we have created our own methodologies um, and, and processes that are rational and most importantly, acceptable to those buyers. Because remember, this is a voluntary market. So the price of that carbon credit is solely in the eye of the beholder and what he thinks this thing will go for. So we've done a few things to bring the costs down. One, for example, is uh, there's no need to do actual soil testing across every acre. Um, there are widely accepted vendors that we're using that do, they, they, they get the soil for the baseline at their expense. Um, and then from there, we monitor the carbon remotely, satellite technology down to 30 centimeters. That's one way we save a dramatic amount of money. Um, something that we're looking at right now, we give, so we, we do use third parties to verify at the end of the program, yes, this has been sequestered. Yes, this should be a carbon credit. And, and, and we think that that is, a, having a third party independent auditor do that is essential. Um, and we've seen with some of our competitors how not doing that uh, can cut the price of that carbon credit in half. Um, so we do do that. Now, the traditional way was to go to a company called Vera or, um, or Gold Standard and, the, and they're big scientific and academics. And, you know, they've got more than a two-year backlog. It's high six figures to get in. So first of all, we said, we don't need you. It's not, it's science. It's not rocket science. We created our own methodologies. And then we said, well, we're going to go to a, that third party to verify and um, to, to validate the program and verify it, validate at the beginning and verify at the end. Um, well, those VVB firms that, that, that we call them, they now have a two-year backlog as well. So we're giving our clients the option, we'll validate it for you. We'll, and validating is simply, you have solid data, you have a solid methodology, you're showing us these regenerative practices that you're doing that is creating additionality um, meaning more carbon sequestered than you than yesterday, um, and but you will still have that third party verify that at the end of the five year program. Um, so upon validation, we allow our our um, clients to pre sell a sizable portion of those estimated total that will come out at the end of the five years. And the reasons why it's five years is a demonstration to show permanence that we're, we're doing this every single year, that carbon is staying in the ground. That's really important to the buyer to see that that's happening. Um, but five years, as you all know, is an eternity for particularly in a, you know, a little, little industry like ours in hemp. 
Um, so we're saying you can pre-sell them. Not all of them, we are withholding some, you know, as a buffer just in case, um, but you can pre-sell, we recommend 12 and a half percent each year of the five years. You may pre-sell up to 62%, um, but we will still hold that buffer in the end um, for all the unforeseen um, issues. And then once, once again, once it's verified, um, that's where we bring, where we will have these two types of buyers. One is the actual offsetter, your oil and gas, your Microsoft Climate Fund, um, and, and those types of buyers, even Etsy's you know, offering people to offset their, their purchases. They do that through buying these types of credits. The other, we're, the, you know we get, we're all about liquidity on our trading platform. Um, another thing we're doing is bringing in traders and bankers. So they can, they can buy it and sit on it for a little bit and speculate on that. And that is essential to you all as well so that you have liquidity and you have options who you sell to. Um, so ho hopefully, Jeff, do you, did I answer your questions? You got something else? Follow on. Yes. There's, um, did you see one? Yeah, did you see the next question, Julie? Uh, about the blockchain part? Yep, you got it. Yeah, yeah. So I have been an, an enormous naysayer of blockchain for physical commodities. I still am. But carbon is a digital commodity. And we do need that. We do need blockchain. Um, and we are uh, working with a top shelf international consortium um, that includes the likes of Google and IBM and several multinational banks um, that support this distributed ledger technology. It is essential. We have to be able to see who bought your credit. Is it even issued yet? And are they holding it? Are you holding it? And then when is it sold to that emitter and when does it retire? Most of the others, for simplicity, they just simply, you buy it, it's retired. Um, but we're building that liquidity in the market by saying, there's time left on this, don't have to do it today. Um, so, so that's, um, yeah, that's hopefully the answer to your question. I can go on for hours, so let me know what you want to know. Well, I was just going to say, I feel like this is, we're about at an hour, and I know that there are going to be a lot more questions. Julie, can you talk a little bit, who's the perfect person to work with Pan Exchange? Who fits inside that box so that as people are out there and may have more questions, when is it right for them to come to the table and schedule an appointment with Pan Exchange? Yeah, I, I really appreciate that question, Mandy. So um, on the carbon front, we really would appreciate you doing your homework. We have a ton of resources on our website. We even we have a, an article called the Car Carbon uh, Farmer Checklist. Sorry, I, this is Adobe, so I, don't, I can't cut and paste. But do you see here the, the, the Listen to the Farmers article I mentioned, the Farmer Checklist. These are the different types of programs that are out there. Do your homework. We have recording on a you know, crash course that Alex did on uh, go-to-market strategies here in, and similar to what I just talked about, but in far more detail. Um, so do that homework first. And when you understand how carbon markets work and you think it might work for you and you have a plan, um, that's at for carbon, that's when you come to us. Um, with regard to the fundamental analysis with helping you guys get funding, which we would love to do, helping you get a grant, um, you, you know, come to us with, this is my wish list. Can you, can you get this data for me? Can you make this report for me? Um, I wanna give it to my banker and, or I wanna show it to these potential investors. Can you help me create that pitch deck? Um, we absolutely love that kind of work. Um, and helping people get off the ground in that way. And, and on a macro level, like I said, this East African project, um, you know, if they, if, if they get their ducks in the road, it actually hit go on this. We've been working with them. How exciting is that to help build a hemp, an entire hemp program, um, growing, uh, testing, exporting, all of it. Um, so so um, yeah, the, the consulting on the hemp, any stage just be, specific about what you want. Um, and then Carbon, please do a little homework, um, have an idea of what you want and our doors are open for the 2023 year and get these credits to market this year. 
Well, and I was going to say Global Hemp Association has a ton of resources from inter multiple interviews with Julie and Seth that they've been on, uh, multiple other interviews with people in the carbon market, uh, lots of articles. And so I would also just put that out there. If you have initial questions, just getting your feet wet about how to engage or where this would work within your business. Um, and then also Jeff. Jeff Trotter's got lots of lots of information as well on Regenivus. And so keep that in mind. Um, also, um, real quick question from Karen Seth. I don't know if you see this. A five-year plan would be for conventional growers. Uh-oh, I lost it. Oh, I, I sorry, I was answering that because I thought we were. Oh, I was perfect. just trying yeah. to follow wanna... up like as far as fast as I could in the uh... yeah, follow up with that one real quick. And then um Julie, you want to put your connect us with us page again up so that they have contact info for you. And then Seth, go ahead. Yeah, on like a five-year plan. Um so like long story short is yes, a crop rotation would work with these programs. Um, and the methodology, like a soil methodology is not necessarily driven by so much as what crops you grow. Um, hemp definitely helps with that, but it's more or less like the long-term practices that you are implementing. So like if you are using hemp as a rotational crop, that adds to um, that carbon, that adds to like the sequestration rates. But for us, I mean, like the carbon side is like, we can work for the conventional operation or a hemp operation um, is not necessarily restricted to um, like a hemp growth for that year. Um, so honestly, yeah, that's what we're made for is to work with conventional growers and um, in hemp specific growers. So short answer is yes, I'm kind of butchered that, but. Well, you guys gave a really good presentation for anybody that was at the Montana summit. Seth presented some information that was pretty eye-opening about the value of, you know, he broke down different steps. This just kind of gives a picture of some of the work that they do, but broke down steps in, had you added a rotation crop, had you added multiple rotations, you know, what year of the rotation you were in, what you could expect in return on your carbon and carbon credits, uh, increased land health, soil health. It was just very robust, but gave real perspective of the five-year plan or so, or beyond where revenue really builds and when you start to see that difference. And so um, lots of good information out there. I wish I could repeat any of it because I just remember being like, wait, what? <laughs> you just see the real opportunity in adding it as a rotation. Um, and so, well, you guys, yeah. I want to say thank you again. Do you have anything else? Yeah, you want to add? Yeah, I was going to say, if y'all had questions on like a soil carbon program, we'd be happy to run through like a feasibility analysis on that. And yeah, I mean, honestly, like we want y'all to jump, like we want people to participate in a carbon program only if it's right for them. We don't want to force anybody into that. Um, so we're happy to work through like the feasibility of that with anybody that's interested. Awesome. 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 Okay. Again, if there's any questions, don't hesitate to reach out to Julie and Seth, myself included. I want to say thank you very much for all of our members and sponsors and everybody that has supported what we're doing, helped to promote what we're doing. I really, really appreciate it. We're making progress. <laughs> it feels like we're rolling this giant boulder uphill, but you no, know, we're really looking to make it